Welcome back to another episode of Tank Talks. I'm your host, Matt Cohen. And on today's show, we welcome Jeff Leathers, CEO and co-founder of TAP, to discuss the world of limited partner secondaries in venture capital. Jeff shares his journey working at Carta and the challenges he saw during his time there that GPs and LPs were facing when it came to valuing their venture capital investments and why he was motivated to start TAP. Next, we dig into LP Secondaries 101 with a beginner's guide to understanding LP Secondaries and their importance in the venture capital ecosystem. In addition, we take a look back at the growth of the secondaries market over the past two decades. Jeff breaks down what an LP-led and GP-led transaction looks like and the key differences between tender offers, continuation vehicles, and staple transactions. Lastly, we discuss how technology is reducing transaction costs and transforming the secondary industry and how emerging LPs and GPs should be thinking about the secondaries market moving forward. Now let's jump into the tank for this week's interview with Jeff Leathers from TAP. Thanks for joining us in the tank today, Jeff. And this is for a second time, might I add. Thank you for having me for a second time. The first time was actually on Clubhouse, which kind of dates when we were talking, I think. Oh my God, I totally forgot it was on Clubhouse. Yes, what happened to that piece of shit? <laughs> I think, you I know- I think it's it was, still running. It Definitely, and I actually think uh, internationally it's doing all right. But uh, yeah, it definitely seems to be something that was more prevalent when we were all locked in our houses. Exactly. Well, thanks again for joining us. You know, for those of us who weren't listening to you talk about everything that you were doing during COVID on Clubhouse, can you share your journey and experiences with our audience to understand how you got into the venture capital world and currently what you're working on now? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, my name is Jeff Leathers. I'm the co-founder and CEO of TAP, which is a secondaries platform targeting LP secondaries. You know, my entire career has been in fintech. So I started my career as a product manager at Bloomberg, working on the equity options products there. So uh, doing, you know, valuation, trade monitoring for some of the most liquid financial derivatives markets in the world. And then uh, most recently, I worked at Carta. And that's where we that's where we spoke before at Carta. I was also a product manager and ended up starting the uh, SPD program at Carta. So similar to AngelList SPV and all those sort of out-of-the-box SPV providers, we were one of the, the first folks to do that. Grew up that business to several hundred entities, billions of dollars in DAS under administration, um, and, and really ran all parts of that business. We also started a product at Carta around emerging managers, starting your first fund. So when you're on your fund one and you don't really know anything about what it means to run a venture capital fund, Carta's fund services would help you get started with your management company, your GP entity, your fund entity, uh, your banking, and everything else you need to get started. So I kind of have this background that comes from both the you know liquid markets world, uh, building product there, and also building product in this private markets world. And that's really where TAP comes from is kind of bridging the gap between the two. You know, you know, we'll probably get into this at some point, but in private markets, there are so many things that are just completely manual, old school, done via pen and paper and humans on calls and and all that. And it's a it's a far cry from what technology really can can do in this industry by you know really reducing transaction costs and increasing liquidity. And so that's really what what TAP is all about. So currently founder of TAP, you know, we started in 2021. And, you know, the, the platform is really about helping folks trade uh, VC funds, PE funds, any type of private fund in the secondary market. Right. And we're going to get into the limited par- partner secondary market that you talk about. But, you know, we, we met when you were at Carta. Uh, you feel like you're always at the bleeding edge of when sort of problems are really pissing people off and need to be solved with technology. You know, during your time at Carta, as you said, you were the head of SPVs and fund formations. You know, what were some of the biggest challenges that GPs and LPs were facing? You mentioned some of them, you know, when it came to the investing in the private world and managing those investments. But also, how did it change your understanding of what was valued by GPs and LPs while making those investments in venture capital funds? 
LPs and GPs investing in venture capital, it's a, it's a hard a, uh, asset class to access. And so the, the top thing for any of those managers is, is figuring out how to get into the best VC funds. So that's what VC is all about. It's about access. And so getting into the top funds is obviously the top priority. But then second is if you're not going to get in those top funds, which really are reserved for the largest you know, asset managers in the world who can have longstanding relationships with the very big mega funds. If you want to get into emerging managers, which is really more where you played, you know, data is an incredibly important thing uh, in that world. You know, being able to assess track record, to have the correct data on, on who's doing well and who's not doing well, that's something that you didn't really have before. And one thing you see about Carta is that Carta kind of has productized and, and has captured a lot of the data around early stage venture, late stage venture. And there's amazing pricing data and fundamental data that comes out there all the time and really is, uh, you know, an essential part of, of getting folks the, the information necessary to access venture. And the second thing is just all the, the stuff around the paperwork, basically. And so this is where both Carta and other folks like AngelList are making, have made big strides and actually just getting into a venture fund has been, is historically has been super, super difficult to, to access, you know, a venture fund, you had to fill out tons of paperwork. You had to, you know, fill out questionnaires that you really might not be comfortable with, usually get a lawyer involved at some point. AngelList has really made that entire process for both the GPs and the LPs who are coming into those funds really, really simple. And that's kind of at Carta, what we were building was a very similar uh, product to that uh, on the SPV side. And, you know, that's similar type of thing I've seen done in many places before. And it's the same type of thing that we're doing to tap. Right. I mean, some of those insights you're talking about that were coming from the Carta platform were just released recently, actually. And it's gotten a lot of attention, you know, on Twitter and on LinkedIn. You know, it's interesting that people still question the data, though. No matter what data they get, Carta, as truthful as it is, or whatever the sources they can gather from as first priority data they can get, it still feels like it's questions because it's illiquid, because it's private markets. You know, what was this tipping point for you to think about how you can help solve a lot of the problems that are faced in the private and illiquid markets when it came to supporting the LPs and the transparency that the GPs need to provide? I mean, the, the tipping point really was, you know, working at Carta, I obviously had interactions with tons of VCs, tons of LPs uh, as part of building this product and really saw how difficult this process was. You know, I've talked to many LPs in this space and really heard all about how it is to do sec to do secondaries in, in private markets and primaries for that matter. And, you know, it is just a very, very manual process. You know, we, we can get into it, but the real tipping point was hearing those stories and hearing the long convoluted story about how you get into, into one of these funds. You know, we, I basically created a diagram for these, a big diagram that sort of lines up how exactly a secondary transaction work. And you wouldn't, you'd be blown away by how big this diagram is, how many different parties are involved, how many uh, different steps there are and how every single part of it is done almost completely manually. And so, you know, kind of seeing that diagram, which is a similar diagram to what I created before I started Carta SPV was really the tipping point to realize that there's something here. Uh, there's something that we need to build in the secondary market for LP interests. Right. And so let's make the distinction here on what you're talking about. We're not talking about VC funds selling their underlying portfolio assets to generate DPI for their funds. You're talking about how a venture fund has capital that's tied up for at least 10 years, sometimes longer. And the LPs that come in early and have that money locked up want liquidity earlier than typically is provided. 
And so there's these LP secondary platforms that are created. Industry Ventures has been one of the leaders in LP secondaries. The um, you know Whitehorse partners have been doing this on the private equity secondary. So private equity has had LP secondaries for quite some time. But you're talking about the LP secondaries for the venture capital asset class. So tell us about how those sort of things are different and why it is something that hasn't really been talked about until recently, as more people are getting frustrated with the illiquidity and lack of DPI in a lot of the venture funds. LP secondaries are separate from direct secondaries. So direct secondaries would be, you know, Andreessen Horowitz selling shares of a portfolio company like a Figma or a Rippling or something like that, a private company that, uh, that they sell or an early employee or founder selling shares. Those are direct secondaries. That's not what TAP focuses on. What we really focus on is LP secondaries. And that is a pension fund, an insurance company, a high net worth individual who has invested in a venture capital fund or a private equity fund who is trying to sell shares in that private equity fund itself. And so that is really what uh, TAP is focused on. And it's a, a very different market, partially because it is cross-asset class. And so TAP focuses on you know venture capital funds, but also private equity funds, infrastructure, natural resources, real estate, and the like. And um, really, like you said, this is a, an old market. It's, it's uh, quite old. First LP secondary was done in 1979. And it was actually a venture capital fund secondary that, that IBM was selling some of their venture capital funds. And it's been growing ever since then. So they, just to give you a little bit of the size of this market, an idea of the size of this market, it was about $2 billion in 2000. So pretty small, $20 billion in about 2010. And today in the past couple of years, it's been over $100 billion each year. So $130 billion in 2021, $105 billion in 2022. And then this year, folks are thinking that it's going to track for the largest year ever with consensus being that it's going to be somewhere in the, in the high hundreds of millions. Now, obviously the output, that number is only growing because the input into what's gone into the asset class has also grown to hundreds of billions, right? So that makes sense. But why do you think now is the time where we need a platform accelerated by technology to take this opaque market and make it more efficient? You know, I really worked at Carta and a lot of folks who left Carta, like a couple of guys I know at Passthrough and folks at other firms as well, have created, you know, a lot of technology around doing all the different pieces of starting a venture capital fund, of, you know, doing subscription documents to get into venture capital fund, of capturing the data, like the folks, uh, one of the uh, folks at Carta who founded Standard Metrics, which captures data um, inside of venture capital funds. So all this, everything is getting productized. And the thing that seems to still be lagging is that the actual transaction, secondary market transactions are still done in a very, very manual way. And so really in a t- from a timing perspective, every piece of technology is kind of coming up at the same time. And we think that there's a role to be played for someone who actually connects the secondary market. And that's really what we, w- what we want to be. It's taking, uh, you know, sources of data that help with settlement or help with information or help with, you know, finding out who holds what and bring all those things together in a marketplace. And so that's really what, what TAP is all about. Right. And so I've been part of secondaries for you know my entire career. I've done it obviously on the private side and the public side. You know, I've done secondaries on uh, you know, pre-IPO companies. I've actually done my first LP secondary where I was the GP approving a secondary for one of our LPs who was selling their portfolio to a leading LP who bought up the portfolio. Now, maybe you could explain to us all the different types of problems that can come along with LP secondaries because it's not an easy 
thing. First off, the valuation possibilities are endless because it's a portfolio. So maybe walk our listeners through what the mechanics are in getting from first point of contact to an LP actual secondary closing. Yeah, absolutely. So the first thing is, is that most LPs, it is LP driven and most LPs hire advisors. So they do hire uh, someone to help them with the process. And that's something that TAP does, for instance. So the reason why is that most LPs do not engage with these markets very regularly. They typically plan on holding the venture capital fund for the whole life. But there's a lot of reasons to sell, a lot of reasons, especially right now to sell in order to generate liquidity. And when those things come up, they usually hire advisor to go through this process with them. The process is very difficult because you don't know exactly who's going to buy this thing. Private markets are private. And so you don't know who owns what, who's interested in what. So on TAP, for instance, we now have a a platform with 3,000 bids and asks submitted every month. You have uh, hundreds of folks who put input their holdings into TAP. And so we have a lot of this stuff mapped already. And that's kind of how we work with it. But traditionally, when you go through this process, you just have to go out and find who owns these things, who wants these things. Then you have to figure out how much they're worth once you even find a set of counterparties that you might want to transact with. And that's where you were talking about, you know, it's very difficult to figure out what a venture capital fund is worth. You need to know information on the underlying portfolio companies. So you obviously get their net asset values of the portfolio companies from the the GP. So you get the marks, but we all know that last round marks don't necessarily line up with the current reality of where companies might be trading. What you really need to do is go in and do a fundamental value analysis on those underlying portfolio companies. Typically, the way that buyers will do it is they'll focus on a few value drivers within the portfolio. So venture capital, we know, follows this this power law dynamic where a few companies drive all the value. So they typically pick the top few companies in the portfolio, and they actually do a little bit of a deep dive. Usually, the buyers will perhaps have some information on those companies, be able to talk to management of those companies. And then the rest of the portfolio, they kind of take some standard discounts and try and pick and choose their spots in terms of where they're going to actually come up with price. Right. And how long do you think this process takes? three months um, to do the entire process end to end. So it is quite a long process, two months approximately to, to, to find buyers, get to price. And then you have to wait for, in your case, for instance, you were uh, rubber stamping one of these transactions that was going through. You have to wait for the GP to actually go through, do the transfer agreement, purchase and sale agreement, stamp the transaction, and then get the, the fund admins, everyone to move the interest around. So it's a very long process uh, when it comes down to it. Yeah. And sometimes the GPs may not approve it. Why would that be the case? Yeah, in venture, it's more often the case. Just like founders in venture, GPs in venture are also you know, very particular about who they let into their venture capital fund. And so some VCs have approved buyers lists that are varying lengths. And those are the, basically the folks who get approved to, to come into the fund. And we often see that some VCs do not approve a, a buyer. But for the most part, you know, people are open to having any LP who's you know, substantial. And some of the ones, the secondaries funds themselves really aim to be very passive capital. So there's an entire industry of folks whose entire reason for being is buying these these shares. You mentioned some of them, Industry Ventures and Whitehorse, and a bunch of the largest fund of funds in the world also do this activity. And they're all passive LPs. And so as a GP, you don't have much to object to when they come onto your cap table. Right. The only reason I've heard of an objection is that if you already have a secondary LP in your fund and they are large, they don't want another secondary LP fund to be buying access to your fund. Yeah. Sometimes there's a little bit of infighting infighting there for sure. 
Yeah. So with over 600 million in market transactions already on tap, what sets you apart from some of the other maybe legacy players out there? You know, the first thing is really that we just use technology to to do this process. Like I said, there's, you know, 3000 bids and asks submitted on the platform every month. We have the majority of the secondaries funds are on the platform and we really try and reduce the costs associated that big, long convoluted process that we were talking about. We're trying to bring it down from something like 12 weeks to 12 days. Right. And we, we have gotten close to that so far. And really the way that we do that is by pre-mapping who owns what, who wants to buy what, so that when you come to us, we can give you a, uh, as an LP, we can give you a better price indication as to what your assets are worth and a, and a quicker, uh, more fulsome list of who can buy those assets. And then from there, we, we process everything in a, in a more technology kind of driven way. And then the, the second thing is we, we do just hire great folks to work at TAP. And so we have folks from some of the largest investment banks in this area. Some of the largest ones are Evercore, Campbell Lutchins. We have people that come from there. And then even in the middle market, there's Setter, um, which is sort of the biggest uh, name in the, in the middle market of these transactions. And that's really where, where TAP sits as well. So we uh, kind of do transactions between $1 and $100 million in value. The, the smallest one we've ever done is $200,000. The largest one we've ever done is $300 million uh, in value. But, you know, we kind of sit in this this middle market area and we really hire some of the best people to operate in that market and really trying to bring a lot more trust and transparency to that market than has been, has been in the past. If if you've been engaging, Matt, in, in these secondary markets for years, you've probably run to scenarios where people weren't doing things that you really liked. And we're really trying to change the, the reputation that, that these sort of uh, middle secondary markets have. Yeah, because it starts with the supply side from the LP side, but the GP is heavily involved because they've got to open the kimono and kind of basically give up all this information to somebody who may or may not actually transact on their underlying portfolio. And that makes them vulnerable to like, hey, maybe your marks aren't actually, you know, 2.5x MOIC when the secondary LP stake is selling for 1.6 times. And so there's this sort of like, you know, chicken and egg scenario that GPs are going to have to face the music sometimes. But have you ever seen GPs trying to cobble together a group of maybe smaller high net worth LPs into a bucket to get a secondary LP uh, buyer onto their table or like their LP roster so that they can also be uh, an LP on future funds? I haven't seen this scenario where they're putting a bunch of high net worths together, but definitely uh, scenarios where folks are doing what are called stapled transactions. And in a stapled transaction, you uh, both do a secondary tender offer inside of your fund often with a big secondaries fund. This would be Hamilton Lane, Stepstone, Caller Capital. These guys have billions and billions of dollars in their secondaries funds. And as part of the deal of doing that tender offer with your LPs in, let's say, fund one, fund two uh, you actually get a primary commitment from that large uh, secondaries fund. And so, yeah, this is a typical type of transaction that folks do. And obviously something that is increasingly interesting in this market environment where it's difficult to raise. Right. So let's double click on that. You mentioned a bunch of buzzwords that maybe some of our listeners aren't aware of. You mentioned tender offers, continuation vehicles, staple transactions. Let's break down each one of those terms and explain to the, the value they bring to both the LPs and the GPs. I think this is super important because I think in venture, there's not enough knowledge uh, among GPs, especially around the types of things that secondary markets can do for them. So these are called GP-led transactions. GP-led transactions are just like they sound. It's when someone like you, Matt, at Ripple Ventures decides that they want to engage with secondary markets to help 
uh, support their fund in one way or another. And there's a few types of transactions that fall within this. So the first one that you mentioned was tender offers. So sometimes you have a bunch of uh, LPs that are coming to you all the time and you have a, a fund that's in year eight and they're saying, hey, look, we haven't seen enough liquidity yet. Could we get some liquidity on this fund? What you can do to sort of alleviate that, that uh, pressure from LPs is you can run a tender offer process. And a tender offer process is where you bring in a secondaries fund. They make an offer to buy out some of your LPs. You go and make that offer to the entire LP base and people have the option, the LPs have the option to take it or not take it at the price that is offered. Now, is there a minimum usually before they say like, we're not going to buy up like small stakes. We want to have a minimum threshold before we do the whole tender or no? Yeah. Usually there's a minimum and a maximum that they have to, you know, kind of get uptake in terms of the LPs in order to make the transaction work. And then the second one you mentioned was continuation vehicles. This is one of the most popular types of GP LEDs. It's been growing insanely fast over the past five years or so. It's very popular among the larger managers, among folks in private equity, and everyone has very large expectations for how GP LEDs are going to grow. Interestingly, I found that folks in venture, GPs in venture, really know very little about continuation vehicles. And I think they're a really good fit for venture and will eventually be something, a very important liquidity mechanism uh, for folks in venture. So continuation vehicles are uh, a way for GPs to spin out uh, some of their best performing assets into a side SPV that they still control to give LPs liquidity, generate DPI for the fund, but at the same time, maintain their management fees, maintain their, their carry on this vehicle. And so what you do is you're a venture capital fund. You take one of your, your, your top assets, you create an SPV on the side that you control. You move that top asset into that SPV. You have a secondaries fund that has already agreed to buy out any of your LPs who, who don't want to get new shares of this SPV. So you offer share, you offer the SPVs can, the, the LPs can either roll in to the side vehicle or uh, they can take the cash from the secondaries fund and be done with it. And the benefits for you as the GP are that you get, you know, to show DPI on your fund, which is incredibly important these days, you get to kind of uh, deal with the LPs who are needing liquidity, but you also get to hold on to your treasured assets that are some of your top performing assets for the long term and keep that carry, keep those management fees, keep the AUM and, and keep everything that's great about being able to hold on to those assets. Yeah. You mentioned keeping the management fees. I assume most of the time you're probably at the tail end of management fees already if it's a high performing asset. So you're not really doing it for that. You're really doing it for the, the larger carried interest. If you're at 50x on an asset, you know, that's private pre-IPO and you think it can get to 75x, you just don't want to give up that extra 25x multiple on the carried interest by selling or being forced to sell too early. So you create these continuation vehicles. Yeah, these transactions are sort of uh, fraught with conflict. And so actually, you just saw yesterday, the SEC came out with this large rule about private markets. And one of the things that was in there was a rule about GP-led secondaries, specifically these uh, continuation vehicles is what they're targeting. And, you know, there are a lot of conflicts in this because as a GP, you're doing, you're basically transferring this asset to an affiliated entity that you still control. And so, you know, you aren't necessarily incentivized to get the absolute best price for your LPs as part of this process. So what the SEC has done is they've mandated that you have either a fairness opinion or evaluation opinion uh, done on these assets before they're transferred in. And so that's that's something that I don't think will really put much of a damper, but does increase the cost a little bit of doing some of these GP-led secondary transactions. Yeah, it begs the question of whether or not like opportunity funds should be buying or continuation funds should be buying earlier stakes in uh, early stage vehicles, giving DPI to those early LPs. But having the LPs in the continuation vehicle hold the bag if those things don't end up working out. And what's the you know continuation really policy between those two? So uh, I agree, we have to bring more scrutiny to that. And then the last one you mentioned were staple transactions. What are those? 
Yeah, so a staple transaction is usually something that is stapled on to some of these other transactions that you might do with a secondaries fund. And what it really is, is it it's just any time that the secondaries fund who's buying from your LPs or from you, any time that they agree to put money into your next fund in a primary fundraising round as a part of the overall secondary transaction they're doing. And so uh, that's something that we're obviously seeing is increasingly popular to want it on the sell side, the, the GPs want to get stapled transactions. I think now the hard part is that a lot of uh, these folks, these large secondary, uh, these large secondaries funds, do not want to allocate to uh, certain venture funds in in primaries. And so, you know, the kind of the, the market has shifted in that direction as everything has. Let's talk about the current market and how it's shifting. The current landscape as it sits today, when it comes to secondary markets and what's driving the most activity from the LP side and the GP side, what are you seeing out there? Yeah, so it's a buyer's market first off, right? There are $2 of secondary transactions that want to be done for every $1 of capital that they have to allocate. So there is uh, uh, you know, about $200 billion in dry powder and secondaries, uh, secondary funds right now. And there's only about $100 billion of transactions that will get done this year. You know, there's a, there's a lot of uh, sell-side uh, supply chasing a few demand dollars. And so it's more important than ever to basically be running a very full process if you want to get the best prices. And the reason for that is that really liquidity is a premium right now. The way the Fed has moved interest rates, obviously everyone wants to hold cash. Everyone wants to be cycling their portfolios. A lot of LPs, a lot of institutional LPs are facing what's called the denominator effect, where they have allocated too much into privates um, and they want to cycle out and be able to tactically deploy into new asset classes. And so really folks are using the LP secondary markets uh, as an active man- portfolio management tool. They are proactively approaching the, the secondary markets to, to trade in them. So those are the, really the top things that are driving where markets are trending today and how prices are moving. I'd love to give you a little, like a little summary of where kind of pricing is across different asset classes. There's generally, you know, uh, several asset classes that we look at here, but the biggest one is private equity, which is generally trading about 15 to 30% um, off of last round marks. And then there's venture capital, which has always been the most discounted, but right now is especially discounted. And I would say that most conversations are today starting at 50% off and it's heavily dependent on the vintage of the fund that you are selling. So if you are selling a fund that is a 2020, 2021 vintage, then you know you can expect 50% to be the starting point. And I've seen transactions happening at 90% discounts, 80% discounts. If you are selling something that is a more of a tail end fund right now that was started in 2017, where most of the initial investments were made then, then I'm seeing the marks be the discounts to the marks be much lower. Um, and you still can get situations where you're at that a 30% discount mark. Yeah, so it sounds very similar to the primary secondary market of like pre-IPO companies. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it definitely follows that pretty much to a T. I mean, the underlying assets that are in these funds that everyone are that everyone's trying to buy are those same assets. Your Stripes, your SpaceX's, your Instacarts, your whatever you want to pick, your you know unicorn darling that's fifty percent less than it was a year ago. It trickles down to the overall portfolio pricing. But in terms of private equity, which obviously represents a bigger part of the market, just given how much dollars it accepts, are these discounts being done because the GPs want to change up their LP base? Or is it still being driven mostly by the LPs trying to beef up their denominators because they've been stuck in these funds for over seven, eight years? 
the the market traditionally in terms of the balance between GP leds and LP leds. So where LPs are trying to sell or GPs are doing sort of transactions like the ones we talked about earlier, continuation vehicles, tender offers. Typically, GP leds and LP leds have been 50% for the past few years. Um, with GP leds growing faster and kind of overtaking LP leds in the the, the high higher years like 2021. 2022, we saw a reversal of that. And this year we're seeing a continued reversal of that where the market is more LP driven. So it's more about LPs selling stakes and funds because LPs have more of a reason to sell stakes now than ever before. And so we're seeing, uh, you know, kind of a resurgence of the LP led market versus the GP led market. Got it. You know, given the fact that obviously you've entered the space uh, on your own, there's other players that have been around for a while. You know, what do you envision being the biggest uh, opportunities and the biggest challenges facing this LP secondary market? Given the regulation that just came out yesterday, you're saying, like, what are you seeing coming down the pipe? I think the biggest challenges are also the biggest opportunities, uh, particularly for what we're doing, because at TAP, we are doing something different than what folks have approached in the past, right? So the biggest challenge, if you ask anyone in secondaries, will just say that the market is limited by how much AUM is in these secondaries funds. Right now, there's about $400 billion in AUM in these secondaries funds. There's about $200 billion in dry powder. And it was one of the top fundraising uh, strategies in Q1, as you can imagine, given the sort of the headwinds that everyone sees in uh, secondary markets, they they really want to allocate into that asset class. So the market is very limited by the overall AUM in, in the marketplace. And that is a difficulty because it just takes a long time to raise funds, to grow them up, to get to, you know, have these multi tens of billions of dollars funds and to grow up the entire asset class. And meanwhile, the demand for liquidity is far outstripping the amount of, of dry powder available. And so that's kind of the biggest challenge. That is what folks, everyone will tell you is the biggest challenge in this space. I think the biggest opportunity is to make new sources of capital be available in the secondary markets. And that's really what tra TAP is trying to kind of uh, do as well in this marketplace, which is, you know, you mentioned, uh, Matt, that within the, the, the fund that you kind of, or I guess you did a secondary transaction within one of your funds where one of the LPs bought from another one of the LPs. Now, that's not as common. Typically, you go to a large secondaries fund and they will buy it from you. Having LP to LP transactions is something that can be done on sort of a on a small time basis, but hasn't been productized or done in a larger way before. But that's something that at TAP, by standardizing everything, by giving you sort of the guardrails to do a transaction, we're allowing a lot more LPs who feel knowledgeable about the funds that they're already invested in to go and buy up uh, more uh, of those fund stakes in the secondary markets. And so we're really, that kind of takes away this effect of having a, a limitation on the size of the market based off of the AUM and secondaries funds. Because once you open up the 20, the, the, the 10 plus trillion dollars that are in everyone else's coffers, uh, all the institutional LPs in the world, they can go shop in the secondary market as well, which is a lot more like how, you know, public markets operate themselves where holders are trading to other holders. It's not necessarily that you're trading with a counterparty that's that's specialized to hold that that uh, asset forever. You know, one thing we haven't talked about is the underlying returns or the the returns that are being underwritten when stepping into an LP position. You know, give us a sense of what a secondary LP buyer is typically trying to underwrite for a private equity style transaction and for a venture fund transaction. 
I think that secondaries are a great asset class, first off. I think they are a really, really interesting stream of cash flows because one, they have shorter duration, obviously by definition, than the underlying assets. So these folks, they buy midway through the life of the fund. They mitigate a thing called the J curve. And the J curve is typically in the first years of your investment, you actually, all that money is being put into the ground, it's being deployed. And so you aren't making returns out of the investment for the first few years. And so you have sort of this dip in the, in the, in the J. And then in the, in the out years of the fund, you start to actually get return on that investment. Typically, these funds are buying either at the end of the J curve or somewhere in the middle, but they're not buying in this deployment period of the, of the J curve. And so you get quicker time to liquidity. So it's a really interesting strategy from that perspective. And they are targeting somewhere along the lines of 15% returns for private equity. So similar to sort of the underlying uh, asset class itself, and then higher returns somewhere between 20 and 30% IRRs for uh, venture capital. And, you know, one, some of the ways they generate these is, one, they're buying uh, these assets that obviously are supposed to have great returns, but they have missed sort of that early part of the return, cur- uh, the return stream with the J-curve. Uh, what they do is they, they apply a discount. So even in a sort of a, a, a natural market state, you will still have a 10% discount haircut that you take on the, the underlying book values of the assets. Uh, and that is something that the the secondaries fund put on there to allow them to get to the sort of their target returns they're looking for overall. Right. Yeah. So it, it basically correlates exactly with what the, the existing uh, LPs are underlying for, for a 15% IRR on private equity and 20 plus percent for venture capital is what they're trying to underwrite for, basically. One thing that is different, though, and this is really interesting because venture capital, you know, venture capital traditionally has this, you need to be in the best funds and you do great. But if you're sort of in the average fund or you pick the bad fund, you can have a lot of stinkers out there where you're actually losing money. Secondaries funds, it's very, very rare for secondaries investments where you already know the thing that you're buying and it's already sort of on track. Those These funds are much more secure. So I would say on a risk-adjusted basis, which is obviously very hard to do with the current data, with some of the data that we're creating at TAP, you're going to be able to do these risk-adjusted type of analyses. But on a risk-adjusted basis... Uh, secondaries funds are are far and away some of the best because you get diversification built right in there. They're automatically funds of funds and they're buying later in the life when they already know what they're buying and they just have lower volatility because of that. Yeah. So it's actually very similar to the way we think about pitching our fund to LPs, especially fund of funds who are coming into our fund, you know, with a basically an empty portfolio to start with, with an LP check. But we say to them, we don't invest past series A because we want our LPs to bet on our breakouts with our pro rata. And that's the best way for them to pick the winners that have been de-risked because those companies have exited the J curve and their LP check into the fund gives them exposure 18 months ahead to track those companies. So it's like your entry fee into the fund is a LP check, but your primary investment into the breakouts is your secondary buy-in that is de-risked. And then you can kind of correlate those two together to get a more a realistic and risk-adjusted IRR, which uh, a lot of our LPs do. So I agree that the LP secondary match with maybe an LP primary, like the staple model, I think is some of the best fund-to-fund strategies out there. Super interesting strategy that you guys have set up for sure. Yeah. I mean, it's something we just thought about because, you know, you always got to think, what is the business of your LPs and your investors? Well, the business is to, you know, diversify across a broad array of funds, and then hopefully see the breakouts become successful and then be able to match their investments, their reserves into those breakouts. But you only get access to them if you're an LP in the fund. That's how we thought about it from the beginning. But getting funds to see it that way has been a bit of a challenge. But I think they're waking up to this, especially because the US ones are so good at it. What would you say technology can do to transform an industry like LP secondaries 
in reducing transaction cost. Yeah, I think that is really the top things, right? Technology is first and foremost, great at reducing costs in any industry that it's in. So let's say that first off. And I really think that, you know, you might think that a lot of the things in this market are about kind of the way that things are set up among the different players and the incentives. But I think what it really comes down to is transaction costs in this market. If you go and you look at sort of the, the top transaction costs that you typically have on any financial transaction, um, this is just academic. You can go look it up. It's search costs, information costs, uh, bargaining costs, and then what are called enforcement costs, which is the actual cost of legally setting the transaction. And all those things are insanely high in secondary markets. You know, Just to find the counterparties, to figure out what the assets are worth, there's so much time and effort spent doing these things that in the end, the market participants who are most likely to, to want to come in and trade, it just it, it bars them from being able to do that because you're paying between 1% to 20% of the value of the asset goes away based off of these transaction costs. And the, the biggest one in there is the time that it takes, not just the direct cost of, of, you know, sending the emails and signing the documents and everything, but the time that it takes to do these transactions. We mentioned that it often takes three months to do these transactions. If you think that you have any edge or you understand this asset or something like that, or you want to buy the asset and sell it the next day, which is basically what liquidity is, is when folks can buy and sell assets quickly that's impossible to do in private markets because it takes you three months. So if you think you have a, a, you know, a couple percentage points that you have edge, that's not going to matter in three months. The markets are going to move in various ways. And so the market is not really functioning as efficiently as, as it can. And by taking this technology and using it to map who owns what, who wants what, what things are worth based off of the underlying uh, asset fundamental values, standardizing the documentation around actually settling the transaction, all those things will drive down the transaction costs sub 1% and then we're golden and drive down the time to do transaction costs as well from this sort of three months to this, you know, something that can be measured in weeks or days. Yeah. And I mean, everyone in business knows the saying, time is what kills all deals. And so if you can cut down the time, you know, and hopefully one of the portfolio companies doesn't have a new round of funding or an exit while you're in negotiations or due diligence, like you may miss out on opportunities. So completely agree with that. It happens all the time, right? The market moves on you. The public markets move on you. Something changes with the with the LP. On day one, every LP who wants to transact and every secondary fund who makes you an offer, on day one, they really mean it usually. But then by the time you're two months in, a lot can change internally at the company, at the firm, and externally as well that can cause the transaction to, to fall through. And those sort of starts and stops on transactions is what people have traditionally not liked about the secondary market. Yeah. Okay. Well, I got to ask, you know, how does TAP make money? You know, is it advisory? Is it brokerage costs, transaction costs? Tell us. So we're really meeting the market where it's at. And so we, TAP is uh, an advisory firm. So we have a couple different parts. We, we're a technology company. So the name of the company, you know, is TAP Technologies, Inc. We have an advisory part uh, of the company where we we make money off of, uh, you know, just like any other broker, we have a success fee. So when an LP gets a successful transaction done, we get that. And one thing we're launching very soon here is TAP Capital. And so TAP Capital is our our secondaries fund that we sort of have bolted onto the rest of the business. And TAP Capital, really, its reason for being is to help with underwriting. So TAP Capital underwrites the transactions, does all that legwork of figuring out what things are worth, and then helps other folks invest into the, this market. Got it. And so because it's success fee based, you know, how, are there any retainers? Like, how do you pay for your team and staff to do the work and the due diligence if the transaction is not successful? Yeah. So we, we're only successful when, when they are. And so we take on transactions that we know are going to be successful. So every time when we speak, speak to an LP, we talk to them about the transaction they want to do and we'll go out and get quotes for them. So 
if you're interested in what this thing is worth, you can talk to us. We'll go out and get quotes. And then we basically kind of pre-set up the transaction. We say, look, here's roughly the area that we think this is going to trade at based off of our data internally and the quotes that we got from the market. And then from there, we'll engage the transaction. But we only engage things that we're pretty confident are going to close. And things, like I said, they typically close within three months. So it's a pretty good payback period. Uh, you know, once you get that, you, you get the, uh, the, the cash at the end of three months. Yeah, I like that model. That we do the same thing with our M and A advisory service uh, fees. Like we'll only do success based uh, advisors. Yeah, and obviously it just aligns everyone in the transaction and, and makes everyone happy when when things go well. And and we want to be happy. We, we, the other thing we typically do, and this is this is a, a common thing in the market, is to uh, ladder up your your fee based off of the better prices that you get. So if we get prices for you that that aren't as good, we don't get paid as much. And if we get prices for you that are way above the expectations that you had, then we get paid more. And obviously that kind of incentive really helps us stay even more aligned with the LPs as we're doing these transactions. Yeah, I completely agree. If only all uh, M&A advisors would do that as well. <laughs> um, you know, last thing I got to ask you before we wrap things up, you know, what advice do you have for emerging LPs and GPs looking to understand or access the secondary market space more for maybe them, the uh, GPs who've been shy uh, to kind of entertain the idea or offended to ask the LPs or vice versa? What advice would you have for them? LP secondaries are becoming completely normalized. So this is a completely normal thing. You know, a stat for you here is that about half of all LPs are planning within the next two years from now to access the secondary market. This is something that is very normal uh, to do. These portfolios are being actively managed. There's a lot of information out there uh, on the, the secondary market. You know, you can you can chat with our team. You can go to any uh, number of websites. There's trade journals like Secondaries Investor that you can check out. But, you know, in general... Talk to folks in the space, get knowledgeable about it. I think there are so many VC funds that missed out on liquidity in 2021 that obviously are kicking themselves now. And everyone sees that. And I think now is saying, you know what? And same with LPs. I have to get smart on how secondaries work because I want to be able to engage with this market successfully. So it's becoming very normal and uh, go out there, meet folks, learn about the market. And when the time comes where you want to transact, you will be knowledgeable enough to do so. And the last thing I'd say on this is, hire an advisor because you don't transact in secondaries every single year, every single month. It's not your full-time job. So bring on someone who it is their full-time job to do this. And it can be well worth the money, especially with the alignment we were just talking about a second ago. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, what is your personal vision, Jeff, for the future of these limited partner secondaries? And how do you think TAP plays a role in shaping the future of this market? Yeah. So I think that we have a future where there is much more liquidity than there's today. So the numbers today are about 1% of private funds turnover. So there's about $10 trillion in private funds right now. Uh, there's about $100 billion that trade per year. So that's about a 1% turnover rate. Uh, you know, on a lot of public stocks, there's a 50% turnover in days. Public markets are insanely liquid. Private markets are insanely illiquid. Now, I don't think the uh, private markets will ever approach the public markets, but I think that we we very well should be at a 10% turnover rate within uh, secondary markets. And I think the absolutely crucial thing with that is just to get the transaction costs down. The transaction costs right now do not support having market makers and having things that allow this market to turn over uh, regularly. And so by bringing transaction costs down, we're going to be able to, just like any good, you bring the cost down, you increase the, the demand for the good. And here, that's what it's going to be with secondaries volume. That's my opinion. Yeah, super fascinating and excited to see the journey. And who knows, maybe we'll actually get some of our LP secondaries through TAP. Uh, so very excited to see that. Before we wrap things up, we always ask our guests for their fast favorites. So first off, your favorite podcast. 
Yeah, my favorite podcast is probably the Capital Allocators podcast, uh, which is targeted at LPs. It's a really, really great, fantastic podcast by Ted Seides. Next is your favorite newsletter or blog? It's got to be Money Stuff. I love to open up my my email and see Money Stuff from Matt Levine at Bloomberg. You know, I used to work there at the same time as him and everything. And uh, he's just so tongue-in-cheek and funny. And he's often covers things in the private markets as well as the public markets. So that's my favorite one is Money Stuff. Yeah. And he's had, a, he's had some pretty good stuff over the last few years with all the craziness in the markets. Uh, next is your favorite tech gadget. Probably my AirPods, uh, which we <laughs> we were just talking about earlier. You know, I wear these things around everywhere and I'm, I'm constantly on them, either talking or listening to one of the podcasts or anything like that. I'm super worried that in like 10, 20 years, we're all going to have serious brain or ear issues. But for now, it's becoming incredible. I think that we're all going to wear these things. I think this is going to be the new form factor of how we engage with the world. And we, whenever we have the AI chat bot assistance, we are going to use these things as the main way that we interact with information and with the world around us. Yeah, my wife already hates them. Favorite new trend? I would say artificial intelligence. You know, at Carta, I played around with chat GPT, or not chat GPT, with GPT, the AI, the API. Uh, won a hackathon actually at Carta around um, automating, pulling information out of the LPA. And this was back in 2020 when they first came out with it. I emailed people and and so we won a hackathon with it. I realized how amazing it was then. Well, not completely how amazing it was, but uh, it's so awesome. I mean, I use it every day in everything that I do. And I, I'm really excited to see where all this stuff takes us in terms of automating a, a lot of manual tasks that people are doing. What are your favorite plugins for GPT-4? My most favorite one is super simple, which is just the Ask PDF plugin, uh, where you can you can just throw a huge document in there and pull out any information that you want. It works great. Yeah, for sure. Next is your favorite book. My favorite book is a series of books um, called The Years of Lyndon Johnson. It's a biography of LBJ by Robert A. Caro. It has a cult following. It's multi-thousand page biography, and I've read them multiple times. Uh, I love those things. Um, they're, they're really, really engaging books and would highly recommend them to anyone who's listening. What's the biggest sort of life lesson that you've got from that? Yeah, the biggest life lesson is this takeaway that LBJ um, used to say, which is that if you did everything, absolutely everything, you would win. And in his career, that proved to be the case. He went up over and over again against, you know, completely uh, crazy odds. And uh, over and over again, he did everything, worked day and night, thought about it all the time and, uh, and worked every angle that he could. And in the end, he ended up being successful um, by having that faith. And that's basically what I bring to every day that I'm working at TAP and everything that I'm working on. Every transaction that we work on, there are parts where it's difficult and we just continue holding that in our mind that we just got to do everything and have faith that you will win. win. And is that your favorite life lesson? I think so. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, thanks for joining us in the tank today with Jeff Leathers, CEO and co-founder of TAP. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for listening to another episode of Tank Talks. To learn more about this episode, be sure to go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify to find more detailed notes on this episode or to check out previous episodes. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and a rating as it helps us out a lot. And hit that subscribe button so you can get notified when new episodes come out. Finally, make sure to give me a follow on Twitter at MattyBCohen or at Tank Talk Podcast to stay up to date on new episodes or to be a guest on our show. Till next time. 